You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. We meet here every single week to chop up all the prominent, newsworthy, and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts. Ben, how you doing this week? I'm all right. You know, it feels like feels like we've had newsworthy happenings. Feels like maybe we've been in, it's been a little while since we've got any hilarious happenings. You trying to tell me that the state of the world today is short on hilarity? I just if you could offer up a little hilarity for me, I feel like now is the time when I would like to hear it. Well, I mean that's a that's a that is a tough one for me to uh to try to offer you up some some hilarity. Um I could tell you a joke that my my children tell me. Okay. Uh what did the egg say to the baker? What? You crack me up? Okay. So we're still waiting on the hilarity then, is what you're telling I mean, me. We're, we're talking about three and five-year-olds here, my man. You can't just put the weight of the world on these guys. They're doing their best with their jokes. You know what? Let's let's call it a work in progress and let's move on. How about that? Here's some hilarity for you, folks. Okay, all right. Tell, tell the kids at home about the fun stuff happened over on the Co-Main Event Podcast Patreon page. Man, there's so much fun stuff happening. I mean, you want some hilarity. This hilarity for your ass over there on the Patreon page, patreon.com slash co-main event. You know, not only do we do this here proper, free to all, a river to the people, but also, Chad, every Wednesday, we do the CME live-ish chat where people have a chance to get in there with all their questions, comments, concerns. We chop it up for an hour. It's a good time. There's always a heated battle to see who can be first. People get to, you know, sometimes just expose a window into their own personal madness, and it's just plain old fun. You get in on that for just a dollar a month, which is, frankly, barely even money. Uh, Also, we have our Friday Power Hour, a whole other podcast each week comes out on Fridays. We usually dig a little deeper into one select subject. It also includes, though, the weekly co-main event Patreon Power Hour Power Rankings, the most succinctly named and powerful force in the history of broadcast media. Then, Chad, for the very top tier of our patronage, there is the CME Movie Club. Right now, we are embroiled in the very first installment of the CME Famous Film Director Retrospective. Chosen in a poll by our listeners, we've decided to go with David Fincher for the month of October. Last week, we watched and discussed Seven. This week, we're watching and discussing Fight Club. I I think uh, that might be in line with some of the interests of the mixed martial arts viewing public. What do you think? I think it might might well be. I watched Fight Club on Saturday night, and uh, I got some stuff to say about it. So Saturday night when the fights are going on, you are watching Fight Club. I watched it before the fights, and then I tuned in to uh, the main card. Because uh, you are not messing around trying to watch 180 Toyo Tires commercials is what you're telling me. Well, I'll tell you what I actually did. Um, I, I paused it to watch Condit versus uh, Court McGee, and then I went back, finished it up, kicked it back over to the uh, main card, and uh, watched the rest of the fights. So. There you go. So I did. I, I saw. I felt like I saw my fair share of commercials, but uh, the rest of y'all who sat sat through all the prelims probably uh, probably caught a few more than I did. I guess. And I feel like a guy who is pausing Fight Club to watch actual live UFC fights. 
that's a guy who is going to bed that night with a lot of different images of sweaty men rolling around in his head. Yeah. No, the irony was not lost on me. Okay. I was, Good. Uh, I was basically living out a cliche there that <laughs> night. Uh, if you haven't already, I'd like to encourage you to go out and grab a copy of my book, The Blaze. It's my latest novel. It's a mystery and thriller. I've been hearing a lot of the little co-maniacs like it. They think it's pretty good. You can run out and grab it today on whatever format you like to do your reading. Remember, if you have read it and you did enjoy it, please go ahead and leave me a five-star review over at Amazon or Goodreads or wherever you like to do your reading. Those reviews do help the book. So do me a favor. Buy, read, read, rate, and review The Blaze wherever is best for you. Uh, we got music this week from our guy, Doug Ty, AKA spider fighting. He describes his music as instrumental beat music that straddles the non-existent line between aging indie dork and backpack boom bap. I think nice. it's pretty cool. That's if you like great. You're here on the show. You can check out more over at soundcloud.com slash spider fighting three rounds as usual this week in the whole in the co main event podcast. I almost said the whole main event, which is actually, it's more descriptive. It's more accurately descriptive of the show, if you I ask think me. The whole main event is the podcast you're going to do after I die tragically. Yes. Yeah. No, I've already got numerous episodes in the can for that one, <laughs> including my uh, my heartfelt goodbye to you. Yeah. Uh, do you, did you go ahead and record a bunch where you're like, you know, saving orphans from a fire, uh, drowning in a river while drunk? Uh, safe falling out of a fourth story window and hitting him on the head like a goddamn cartoon character just to cover all the likely bases. Yeah, it's going to be like one of those things where uh, I'm talking and then a, a really obvious robot voice comes in where I say, well, it was it was really we're all saddened this week to have lost Ben after a motorcycle accident. <laughs> and then I, I go on to whatever I'm doing. Anyway, three rounds as usual this week in the whole main event podcast. Round number one, Holly Holm and Carlos Condit, a couple of old Jackson Wink road dogs out here still getting wins in 2020. What a world. And in round number two, so this Israel Adesanya Johnny Bones beef has officially gotten weird, right? And in round number three, another fairly low budget UFC event this weekend live from the fight atoll out there in Abu Dhabi. But Marla Marais and Corey Sandhagen should be a crackerjack. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail this week comes to us from Johnny Fletcher, who writes, Esther Lynn has announced her retirement from combat sports photography. Can we get a shout out to her on the Friday Power Hour or the proper? Yes, we can, Johnny Fletcher. You can have it right here on the proper. Uh, Esther Lynn, Ben, one of the true giants of the MMA media industry. In fact, I think you could argue a person who has dominated her corner of the craft, perhaps more so than anyone else in the industry. Uh, just in terms of like fight photography, there was, you know, there, there was really Esther Lynn. And then there were a lot of other people taking uh, combat sports pictures, taking MMA pictures out here. Uh, I don't think there's really any argument that that she that she's the goat or any argument against her being the best around. And so to lose her from the MMA industry is, in fact, a huge loss, not only just to like the art of the sport and like not being able to see her pictures of fights anymore, but also just like another good person who is uh, well liked and respected by her peers piecing out the game here as as is has been so often the case with so many people here in the recent in the recent past yeah 
You, you know, you're right. There's terms of fight photographers. I don't know if you can find anybody who has done it better than Esther Lynn has done it. And also just a person you say is kind of universally well-liked. There's not that many people in MMA media where you can honestly say nobody has a single bad thing to say about them. None of their peers or colleagues has anything bad to say about them, whether justified or unjustified. But Esther Lynn is one of those people. Everybody loves Esther because she's just a good person. And her reasons for piecing out the game are understandable, and but also make me sad. Maybe they make me sad because I feel like they're so understandable. Because she mentioned this on uh, her announcement on, on the A-side on MMA fighting, but then also – uh, MMA writing uh, longtime editor Brian Tucker put together a little bit of like a Zoom going away party call last week that a bunch of us were on, a bunch of us who were former coworkers of hers. And she kind of explained it a little bit to us in, in there as well. And part of it is definitely that with the COVID situation kind of shutting down our normal travel and for a while shutting down MMA events that basically she hasn't been live at an event to take pictures since like March. And that it's really tough to be the fight photographer if you're not actually at the fights taking pictures. I mean, you know, the UFC is back up and running, but that doesn't mean everybody is back to sending their usual staff of people to these events. And so if you're not out there actually doing the shooting, you know, MMA fighting still has plenty of stuff that it, I'm sure, wants her to do and that she is a contributor in a lot of different ways there. But her love is photography. And if she doesn't get to do it, then I can understand her feeling like she wants to go do something else where she has that creative outlet that she's not getting anymore. But also her talking about just the long-term kind of toll of abuse from fans, abuse from readers and people chiming in in the comments on your like YouTube videos. And, you know, you and I know we, we both written for the internet long enough to know that if you're right on the internet or express opinions on the internet, especially in this, this kind of niche world, like the bubble of uh, combat sports, people are going to say some mean shit to you sometimes. But for a woman in that space, the mean shit is going to be so much worse and so much more constant. And like, if I say something people disagree with, it will be, Ben Folks is an idiot and nobody should ever listen to him. And I have to be like, okay, fair. Uh, but I've seen it with not just Esther, but other like female colleagues who I've worked with in the past. If they say something people disagree with, then it's like, shut up, you whore cunt. You have no business even talking about pro fighting. And it's, and that's going to be every day. There's going to be like some of that almost every day. And after a while, you can understand why somebody would just go, I don't need this shit. Like this is having a, like a buildup effect on my mental health and it's not good and I don't need to be hanging around doing it if there's other stuff I can do. And one of the things she's done voiceover work on these videos that MMA fighting has been putting out for a while and she's good at it. And she's got some voiceover work that she's actually, she, she gave us a little sample on the zoom call. We were like, come on, hit us with a voiceover work uh, sample. And she did it. And we were all like, Whoa, okay. Yeah, no, you do. You do sound like a voiceover like person. You you should absolutely be doing that. So I get it, but you're right that there's no way it's not a major loss for us as a sport and a community to not have her doing the work that she has done for years. Because I, I mean, uh, I saw different threads going up of people saying, "What's your favorite Esther Lynn picture?" And it's so hard to even choose one. Like you look through the thread of different people's responses, and you're like, "These are all like beautiful, artistic." photos that have been of like capturing really important moments in this sport over the last like decade or so. 
Yeah. And if you are one of the idiots that says mean stuff to people on the internet, good job, you fucking yeah. dorks. Way to fucking go, asshole. You chased away one of the greatest of all time. A- actively made the space worse for everyone. So, Are you happy now? Good fucking Proud of yourself? Next question this week comes to us from James Hawkins, who writes, Hey, I just realized Chris Weidman has two common opponents with Adesanya. Gastelum, who we finished. You see what he's doing here. <laughs> I right? see. I see what he's doing. And I appreciate it. Then Silva, who we finished twice. Adesanya squeaked by decisions on both these guys. Adesanya is just another Silva without the black belt in jujitsu. Easy money emoji. Uh, please discourse. Okay. We talked we talked about this a little uh on the power hour on Friday over on the Patreon page that Chris Weidman had started talking about Israel Adesanya, talking about how he thought Adesanya was a tailor-made matchup for him, that he thought he matched up pretty well against the champion. I think this tweet that Weidman sent out didn't come out till after we recorded that. Uh, and I enjoy the way that it's written kind of in Chris Weidman voice with the hay with three Ys. <laughs> yes. you can, I mean, you can see him hanging out with uh, – with Matt, Sarah, and Ray Longo, and looking at his phone, and then just looking up and being like, "Hey, I just realized." <laughs> but like, yeah. he's he's got to stop doing this, right? He's Chris Weidman has got to stop talking about Israel Adesanya uh, before something terrible happens. Does something terrible meaning him actually getting that fight? Because yes. that doesn't feel like. I mean, I know we we seem to be maybe entering a period where. We, it's not too hard to imagine that maybe one or two more wins and we will run out of good ideas of what to do with Israel Adesanya if he's still the dominant champion. You know, he beat Paulo Costa, who's supposed to be this really uh, compelling and scary title challenger. It looks like he's probably going to end up going against uh, the winner of Robert Whitaker and Jared Cannonier, especially if it's Cannonier. If it's Whitaker, who knows? It might depend how he wins it if people want to see that rematch again so soon. Chris Weidman, I mean, he got that win over Amari Akhmedov to break the most recent losing streak. But even that one, it's not like you came out of that one going, well, this Weidman is back. This is what we were hoping to see from the guy, and he is going straight for that title. I mean, he he won the fight, but he did as a... Big homie Leonardo DiCaprio uh, says in Django Unchanged, muddle the line between winning and losing at some points during that fight. So uh, he he would have to win at least a couple more, right, before anybody's seriously talking about him fighting Israel Adesanya? Well, yeah, it wasn't the kind of performance that had us all being like, holy shit, take a sledgehammer to the 185-pound rankings, Carl or uh Chris Weidman is back. Like it wasn't it wasn't that style of win. It was a, hey, good for Chris Weidman kind of a win. Getting off the schneid. Yeah. Getting a mark, getting a mark in the W column. Good for him. I would say he would have to win a number of fights fairly impressively in a row to for us to start thinking about him being a uh, a potential opponent for Israel Adesanya, especially considering all of the stuff that Israel Adesanya appears to be lining up for himself, which we will talk about here coming up later in the show. But like, I don't know, man. It's also it's hard not to look around the landscape of the sport right now and be like, well, we're kind of playing mix and match with our matchmaking anyway. And we've seen just recently a lot of instances of guys going on Twitter and starting beefs that have a way of turning into fights uh, quicker than they normally might. So I just want to make sure that we're all just using caution here. That we're not just tweeting uh, without without thought to the future or our personal health. That we are all, you know, be careful what you wish into the world, man. Be careful what kind of energy you're putting out there. Because what if it comes true? 
Chad, I have some some bad news for you. We are not exercising caution out there on Twitter. Every, I just want to make sure everyone is using caution on the internet. <laughs> just, I I feel like your heart's in the right place, but you you're setting yourself up for disappointment. All right. Next question this week comes to us from Steve Bushimi. Fargo character, Carl Showalter, nice. who writes, you guys, hear me out. Carlos Condit, Robbie Lawler, Nick Diaz, Cowboy Cerrone, round robin style tournament, all five round fights spread out over a year. Person with the best record wins. Head to head results is tiebreaker if needed. And we all stronghold the UFC into giving the winner $10 million. All the others make seven figures minimum. You in. Okay. This is all right. This this idea seems like we're shooting for the moon a little bit, which I appreciate, but especially money wise. Yeah. I like the core idea here that we've talked before about how the UFC seems to disdain the idea of tournaments now, which a little bit ironic considering that the UFC started as only a tournament. And that's created a little bit of an opening for other promoters like Bellator or PFL to get in there and put on their own tournaments, their own Grand Prix style events where this is something the UFC doesn't do, so it's a, but it's also a thing that fans kind of reliably get excited about. You can take almost any group of fighters, you throw them together in a tournament, and by we by the time we get to the last man standing, it feels significant. It doesn't even matter that much who the fighters were or what they're fighting for. Like the tournament has that effect on people. Just just by making it through, it creates this clear like through line that we can envision and we can appreciate, and so. A lot of other promoters have been able to make good use of that. The UFC still won't do it, even in situations that where you could make an argument, as in the recent situation with a vacant light heavyweight title, where you're trying to figure out who should fight to get that belt to crown a new champion. Seems like a good opportunity to do a tournament. The UFC won't do it. But what if, what if, Chad, you take some of these guys who are all hanging around in a similar zone Maybe we could even call it the 165 zone. Some of them are welterweight. Sometimes some of them have fought at lightweight, but they're all around the same size. And they're also at these points in their career where we know them, we appreciate them. They have exciting fighting styles, but they also don't seem like they're going to jump up and challenge for a title anytime soon. So what if you just take those guys and you put them in a tournament? You're not holding up a division uh, and holding up a title waiting to see the end of this tournament. It, and then if somebody gets injured, can't continue in the tournament, then you can slide in a, a replacement or an alternate fairly easily without it being a huge deal that disrupts everything. If we're doing it just for fun, like a just for funsies kind of tournament, wouldn't that be something to see? I couldn't possibly be more in on this idea, uh, both as a fun thing to talk about and as a thing that I think should actually happen, especially because as you mentioned, Carlos Condit, Robbie Lawler, Nick Diaz, and Donald Cerrone are four guys who are all at this point in their career where, where you could, you could say we're looking at each one of these guys and thinking, man, what do we do with this guy? Right? Like we need something to do with these guys. They're all popular. They're all well-known fighters in the landscape. And yet it kind of feels like we don't have a ton of, great options for them aside from the fact that it's that it seems like bob lawler is about to fight uh michael perry uh other than that like we don't we don't have a great uh like uh multiple choice test style question of options for these guys and like i think this would be an awesome thing to do and like even if you can't shoot for the moon and give 10 million dollars to the winner and everybody else makes at least 1 million uh it would still be a cool thing to do for the right price uh and as we say over and over again, 
one of the things that I like about ideas like this is that it would give the UFC something kind of different to offer and something kind of different to talk about, like advertise and and get fans excited. It's like this this particular four man round robin tournament has kind of like a BMF vibe to me. Like, yeah, remember how we all got excited about the BMF title, even though it, it wasn't real and it didn't really mean anything. Like this would be the same kind of thing. It would be something we could all get excited about. We could all look forward to this series of fights. Uh, it would generate some interest and excitement. It wouldn't tie up the division. It wouldn't like screw up either the 170 or, or, you know, 165 title picture, like wherever you wanted to do this thing. And like, it, it would be fun and you'd probably get some good fights out of it. And again, and like the other thing that strikes me is like, if you actually did this, if you were like, okay, we're having a round robin tournament between these four guys, other fighters in the UFC probably wouldn't be able to stop talking about it. Yep. Like uh, I can hear Paul Felder on commentary during a UFC event being like, man, what do I got to do to get in this tournament? Like yep. put me yeah. in this thing. Like it, it would, it would like basically promote itself. It would be fun as hell. Everybody would love it. If it didn't work, it would kind of be like, I don't know, man, no big deal. Right. Yeah. Like we got some good fights out of it and uh, it kind of fell apart. So what? So like, I think that this is a, the the thing that I, as a longtime fan of the sport would love to see the UFC do this kind of stuff. And there is a 0% chance that they would ever actually do it. Yeah, which is a shame because it just seems like sometimes the UFC is resistant to new ideas or just doing anything different than the way it's always done it because it seems like, and this I feel like probably comes from Dana White and spreads all down through the chain of command there, but the UFC's approach to fight promotion seems to be, we know everything there is to know about it. And if if it's something we don't do, it's because it's not a good idea. Like we, we must be great at it because look at how much goddamn money we're making. Look at how successful we are at it. And not thinking that the only thing you have to do is just rinse, repeat over and over again every Saturday night until the end of the year and not thinking about, hey, what would be fun? What's a, a fun new thing we could try? What would get people excited? There's just so little of that going on right now. Yeah. And it seems to me like the the money involved in the ESPN deal and the stability involved in the ESPN deal has made the industry seem somewhat risk averse in a way that it didn't used to be like back in the olden times when everyone was just trying to keep their head above water and, and there were multiple big time promotions all going at the same time. And everybody was kind of trying to one up each other. Like, I don't know that you would come up with this particular idea, but it felt like promoters and companies were more willing to take risks and do kind of like outside the box stuff that might turn out to be fun and might turn out to be a big deal, et cetera, et cetera. Now it feels like that the UFC knows where all its money is coming from essentially over the next however many years that the ESPN deal is running. It feels like their entire philosophy is just sort of like stay the course, do this thing that we know we can do, put on this certain number of shows, put on these uh, pay-per-view events and get this money. Like, and yeah. don't, and don't do anything outside of that that could either cause a problem or uh, in some way like uh, be a PR disaster or like even a, even a small uh, chance that we took that kind of blew up in our face. It seems like right now they're just sort of like, we will do this set of things that we are contractually obligated to do and we will make all this money. 
Yeah. And I think it's also that we will do these things. We're making a fixed amount of money just for doing them. It doesn't matter that much who is on the undercard of some of these, you know, it doesn't matter who the third fight in of this event that we're just being paid for simply putting on at all. And so the way to maximize our revenue is to keep costs low. If we're making this set amount for doing the events, then let's try to get these guys in on entry level contracts from the contender series or whatever else who are not making much. And that way, more of the money gets to stay in our pocket. Next question this week comes to us from Roy Orland, who writes, Juliana Pena's first UFC win came against a 115-pounder whose next fight was her last. Her win over Zingano consisted pretty much of Cat dominating and then giving up position for no apparent reason. When Rousey got the Nunes fight, she complained that she was cutting the line, even though Juliana had actually been even less active than Ronda. She's been subbed by the world's most perfect human being from guard and now by the Iron Lady. Is it finally time to admit that she's been consistently overhyped. Uh, now, he said she a lot in there, but mostly we are referring to Juliana Pena, who obviously lost to Jermaine Durandamy on Saturday night via third-round guillotine choke in a women's bantamweight fight. Uh, you know, the thing about Juliana Pena to me, Ben, is that she just really hasn't even been around that much. Yeah. Since she came into the UFC back in 2013 as the uh, – the winner of the Ultimate Fighter season 18, I believe it was, like, you know, fought once or fought twice in 2015 and then fought once in 2016, once in 2017, missed all of 2018 before then fighting once in 2019 and 2020, respectively. Like, I don't know that we will ever have a gauge of how good or bad Juliana Pena might have been just because she's been seemingly so waylaid by injury and just like unable to keep uh, any kind of consistent schedule. Like we just haven't really seen her. Now you fast forward to 2020. Uh, she's 31 years old. So like definitely not at the end of her athletic life, but also, you know, uh, getting on down the road a little bit. Like I just don't, we look at Julia, Juliana Pena, like it's hard to believe that she would have been like the best in the world at that weight class or would have been like a champion or anything like that. But like, I don't even know that we will ever truly get an accurate picture of what the ceiling might have been for Juliana Pena just because she hasn't been around. Yeah. But I, I mean, I feel like it's probably not too late to change that. Cause like you said, the, the inactivity makes it hard because there's just not that much data to pour through, right? I think she's had like seven fights in seven years kind of coming off the ultimate fighter. And if you look at the two losses that she's had in the UFC, you know, it's Valentina Shevchenko who is really fucking good. We have learned. And then it's Jermaine Durand me in a fight that, Pena looked like she might be on her way to winning on the scorecards. And instead, she gets her head in the wrong spot on a takedown, gets caught in a, a guillotine choke, which, you know, if you're game planning for Jermaine Durandamy, who prior to this fight had zero submission victories in her MMA career, you probably think that you don't have to worry too much about being submitted. But that was a solid ass guillotine by Jermaine. I mean, it wasn't just like that wasn't a lucky one where you just grab on and, and squeeze and hope for the best. She had that on tight right away and really had it locked up. And I mean, that's one of the reasons why the, the guillotine joke is we've talked about before, kind of unique. It's one of those that you learn really early on when you're learning jujitsu or submission grappling and yet still works all the way in high level. And especially still works if you're a fighter like Jermaine Durandamy, who's going to be a kickboxer who, 
you, you're probably going to find yourself being taken down every once in a while or somebody trying to take you down. And so putting their head in a position for a guillotine choke, like, it's not like a rear naked choke or like an arm triangle choke or something where you have to do a whole bunch of things right to even get in the position and set it up and make it happen. The guillotine choke, all you have to do is one thing, right? And you can get it kind of at any point. And it, for Juliana Pena, I'm sure like it's, you know, you get caught by surprise a little bit there, but the fight was even on the scorecards. Looked like she, she might be on her way to win in that third round. She gets stuck, stuck in the choke. I'm not going to look at two losses in the UFC or, you know, since 2013, especially if those two losses are to Shevchenko, a champion and Jermaine Duran to me, a former champion and be like, obviously you suck. I, the, the, the book is not being done written on Juliana Pena. If she can be a little more consistent and a little more active then who knows. Yeah. But I mean, if you, if you're 31, what you don't want to do is show up once a year to fight, have a good performance against Jermaine Duran to me for 13 minutes and then get choked out because that's just, that doesn't really provide us any answers, man. Like that, that leaves us about where we were before we had this fight. Yep. Yes, it does. Next question this week. I guess this will be the last one from George from Houston. He writes, is Holly Holmes defeat of Ronda Rousey, the biggest event that never resulted in meaningful consequence. Yes, Ronda lost, but Holm never became the dominant champ the event merited. Name a bigger letdown from a big moment. Uh, I mean, this is this is true in some ways, like the kind of like the uh, the career story of Holly Holm, really kind of like never being able to put together a consistent run of victories that would uh, cash in on the obvious athletic uh, potential that she has throughout her her entire career. Uh, I don't know that I would say it was the biggest letdown ever. I mean, she did go 0-3 in the wake of that win, which is which is pretty bad for the person who shocks the world at UFC 193. But at the same time, like I wouldn't necessarily call Holly Holm out in a situation where I wouldn't also say the same thing about, say, Leoto Machida or somebody yeah. like that, like somebody where we were like, oh, this person could be a dominant force, could be the champion for a while, and then it just doesn't turn out that way. Yeah. And I, I mean, I guess it depends what you mean when you say something like uh, that, like it led to little meaningful consequence. Because for Roger Rousey, it sort of led to some meaningful consequences. Right? Yes, like, it did. Yeah. Ronda Rousey going out there, getting kicked in her neck, getting knocked out, and a whole lot of people were really eager to kind of jump up and down on her grave there after that. And when she tried to come back, you know, she didn't handle the loss super well to begin with. And then when you try to come back and you're going to go fight somebody like uh, Amanda Nunes, and that's that's going to be a tough fight too. And so next thing you know, she's out the sport. And we've talked before about what a whirlwind affair it was for Ronda Rousey in the sport of MMA and in the UFC, especially like she was a huge figure, changed a whole lot of things, made a huge impact, and then was gone. Yeah. And part of that, like how that started was this Holly Holm loss. Uh, but I don't know, you also... Like you look at Holly Holm right after that. You mentioned the three fight skids she went on. There's there's an alternate universe here where she does stay as a dominant champion because she lost the title in her first title defense her very next fight at UFC 196 against Misha Tate. Now you remember that one. She was winning that damn fight. Like she was about to cruise to a victory on the scorecards. It wasn't the most exciting fight, but she was doing her Holly Holm stuff to Misha Tate. Misha Tate was running out of time and she knew it. And it was like the fifth round, the last couple of minutes of the fifth round, she finally drags Holly Holm down, gets on her back and chokes her out. Yeah. And 
there's an alternate universe where she, that doesn't quite happen. She doesn't get that takedown. She doesn't get the opportunity to do that. And Holly Holm survives and stays champion. And, you know, the, she has a decision loss after that to Valentina Shevchenko, again, who is, has turned out to be really fucking good. And then she has that decision loss to Jermaine Durandamy. That was a close one for the, you know, the women's featherweight title when we decided we were finally going to do that, where she gets hit after the bell a couple times by Jermaine Durandamy. Stuff like that. Like, it's not hard to imagine just a few little things being different and Holly Holm having stayed the champ for a little while. Yeah. I mean, you can kind of say the same thing about Misha Tate, though, also, if you're talking about like, uh, you know, big wins that ultimately like uh, profited very little for the people that, that won them. Like Misha Tate was a person who for a really, really long time uh, we had been hanging around kind of like waiting for her to fulfill her potential in that division. And, and for a long time but prior to the arrival of Holly Holm, I think we were all sort of like, well, without Ronda Rousey, Misha Tate would probably be the longtime UFC champion had been the strike force champion, et cetera. And then like, she finally gets her chance in 2016. She has that come from behind victory where she chokes out Holly Holm. And the next thing she has to do is go fight Amanda Nunes uh, at UFC 200. And obviously like loses that one. Then she loses to Raquel Pennington and she's out of the game on to, uh, you know, we hope better things for Misha Tate. It seems like she's doing okay, but like, uh, you know, you could, you could make a similar argument, I think about Misha Tate as you can about Holly Holm. So I don't necessarily know that it's fair to just single out Holly Holm as like a person who didn't live up to their potential or a person who like had all of this opportunity that she then kind of couldn't live up to. It's um, clearly like that Rousey victory was a big, a big moment, a huge moment. And she never really did kind of cash in on it. But I also don't know that that makes her, super singular in the sport. Yeah. All right. That's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, comment or concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comateevent.com and click the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Ben, a couple old friends showed up on Saturday night and nabbed wins at this UFC on ESPN event. Specifically, Carlos Condit going out there and getting the unanimous decision victory over Court McGee, and Holly Holm going out there and getting the unanimous decision over Irene Eldana. Uh, a couple of old school Jackson Winklejohn fighters, a couple of uh, former champions in their day who have been either absent or kind of down in recent years recent years both come out here to abu dhabi on the same card travel a long way i suppose from albuquerque uh same coaching staff you go out and get a couple of big wins here meaningful i think for both people let's talk a little bit first about uh, carlos condit since we just talked about holly holm uh, a great deal in the listener mail segment but then we can get on a little bit more of uh talking about holly holm here but for carlos condit this one i think felt good for a lot of people to see him go out there uh, and get this win over Court McGee and, and snap what had been a lengthy losing streak for Carlos Condit, a guy who the former WEC welterweight champion, uh, the former UFC interim welterweight champion, he's uh, he's running around there at 36 years old, still the natural born killer in some ways, 
but uh, this is a big win for him to grab this one here over Court McGee. Yeah, let me set a scene for you, Chad. It's Saturday evening. All right, I I'm sitting there with my children. They want to watch Howl's Moving Castle again, so I am watching the fights on my laptop while sort of supervising and fulfilling various snack requests every once in a while. I'm watching Carlos Condit versus Court McGee. I got the sound up just enough so that I can hear, but not so much that's going to interfere with Howl's Moving Castle and get me some some glares. And at the end of round one, Condit comes in with his right hand that floors Court McGee right before the horn. And I uncontrollably shout, oh, like I'm Joe Rogan in a UFC pay-per-view commercial. And they both jumped like a couple inches up off in the air off the couch. And I was like, okay, sorry, sorry. Dad just got a little worked up there because you see the, the big homie. The, the old battler Carlos Condit is back and looking pretty good. Looking like he might actually get a victory here. It, it did my heart good to see it. I mean, unfortunate what happened to Court McGee's nose. That was a, that was a bummer for him. But I was glad to see Carlos Condit go out there and get that victory. It's got to be a huge relief for him. I've talked, I mean, we talked before about this about you talk to some fighters and you ask them what that feeling is like when you win a fight. And they're saying it's not so much joy and happiness as it is just relief. And I imagine when you go in there on a five fight losing streak, the relief of feeling, okay, it's over. I finally got one. I, I got a win. I remember what that feels like and all that pressure sort of lifting off you at once. That's got to be great. Yeah. Not only great to get this win that he's waited so long to get, but also to do it in a way that looked like Carlos Condit, like looked like the Carlos Condit of old out there against Court McGee being lanky and awkward and like uh, moving in with those strikes that came from weird angles with weird timing. And especially, you know, those ones uh, that dropped Court McGee at the end of the first round were, were sort of a great example of like how Carlos Condit can catch you when you're not looking. He can catch you like in transition with like a weird uh, counter combo from an angle that that you don't expect with a timing that you don't expect and just kind of drop you. And then obviously to also put in a beautiful S curve in Court McGee's nose was pretty uh, natural born killer style as well. Harkening back to the days uh, of the WEC when when Condit had that great SureDog.com uh, profile picture where he was splattered in another man's blood. Yeah. Like that's the mm-hmm. Carlos Condit everybody loves. And this that was pretty much the Carlos Condit we got to see on Saturday night, albeit against a guy in Court McGee who is both super easy to like himself and like very durable. So like uh, understandable that you can't quite get the stoppage here against a guy like Court McGee, but you came about as close as I think it, as humanly could have been expected. So for me, it was not only great to see Carlos Condit get the win, but also be like, oh, yeah, that's the Carlos Condit that I recognize. Yeah. Well, the Holly Holm one, I think, is a little bit different just because you wonder what the UFC can do with Holly Holm now. Because it's in one way, she goes out there and puts on a real kind of classic Holly Holm performance and honestly really makes uh, Irene Aldana look like she just does not have an answer for the stuff that Holly Holm can do. And she talked a little bit about, uh, I saw her put up a post on Instagram saying a little bit like she was having trouble with her foot or that she felt like they had a better game plan. She wasn't able to execute it because you do, you're watching that fight unfold and you're kind of going, what, what were you thinking was going to happen here? What, what did you think was your path to victory and what it looked like? Because the stuff Holly Holm is doing here is the stuff we know Holly Holm can do. And 
So you put her in a fight like this and she comes out of it kind of reminding you, hey, look, I might have a fairly recent loss to the the current champion. But if you start putting me in there with people that you hope to be future contenders, there's a pretty good chance that I beat them. And I just crossed their name off the list. And so then what? You know, because on one hand, it seems like maybe the natural fit is Holly Holm and Jermaine Durand to be doing it again, brother. Because, you know, that fight, like we said before, a little bit of controversy, strikes after the bells, a close fight, all that stuff. But they both are in a similar situation where Jermaine Durandamy got dominated on the mat by Amanda Nunes. Holly Holm got knocked out by her. So what do you do? What do you do with either one of them? Because they're both sitting there right at the top of the division. When you say it was a classic Holly Holm performance, it was a classic Holly Holm performance on the good side of things. This was like a... a, a uh, the epitome of what can be a good performance, I think, for Holly Holm, because we've seen a lot of performances from her in the past. And this is kind of the book on Holly Holm, where she goes out there and she looks like an enormous athlete who is capable of beating the brakes off absolutely anyone. But at times she can be frustrating because she goes out there, has a lot of movement, doesn't always pull the trigger in as aggressive a fashion as I think you would like to see her, and is one of those fighters who frequently uh, beats up the air six inches in front of her opponent while doing a, a key eye on every strike. Yeah. And so this this fight against Aldana, I think, was like the best of Holly Holm because she was aggressive. She attacked. She landed those combinations when she threw them. She really froze Aldana in a lot of ways. Like she couldn't really get her offense going. And then like some things that I thought was, was like good to see from Holly Holm was like mixing in takedowns at the end of the rounds. Like she would, uh, you know, force her up against the fence and then get like a trip takedown. And do some work on the ground before before the end of the round. And I know that, you know, people people cast aspersions on fighters that go out here and do smart things to win rounds. But if you're Holly Holm and you're 38 years old, to me, I'm a, just a little bit heartened to like look at this performance and 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 even wonder a little bit, like, okay, maybe Holly Holm has done a thing where she has tried to address some of her uh, flaws that she has tried to like go out there and figure out a way to make the Holly Holm skill set more effective in terms of like you know winning some of these decisions that she lost in her career. Uh, and obviously, you, I don't want to put her over too much because you know a, a win against Irene Aldana is great. It's not a win over Amanda Nunes or Chris Cyborg or anybody like that. But like I still thought it was a great performance for Holly Holm at 38 years old. And like what you do with her now, I think is is an interesting question. Like, clearly, she's not going to be the dominant force that we thought she could be when she came into the UFC undefeated back in 2015 and knocked out Ronda Rousey and, and did all the, that other stuff. But, like, uh, she, she at 38 years old, she sure still looked like the best of Holly Holm to me. Like, it, you, you know, you watch this fight and she still seems as capable of doing all the things that she used to do. Uh, you know, now she doesn't seem like she's lost a step to me. Obviously, we'd like to see her against a higher, uh, a higher caliber opponent. But at the same time, like if you told me she was going to fight GDR next in a rematch, I'd be into that. If you told me that the winner of that fight could rematch Amanda Nunes at, at uh, featherweight for the championship, I would be into that. Like clearly Nunes is going to be the favorite in any fight that she has. And it kind of feels like we're scrounging around for stuff for her to do. So like a rematch with Holly Holm, if she was able to beat Jermaine Durand, me wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. Yeah. And you're right, though, like you look at Holly Holm and you see her at 38 and it doesn't look like we're seeing a whole lot of 
diminishing of physical skills. And if she is also getting smarter about how to win some of these fights at the same time, then, you know, yeah, she, she could definitely be a problem for somebody. Uh, I do, though, I have to picture the UFC coming out of this event thinking, God damn it. Here we go. We made two fights at, at women's bantamweight on this card. And we kind of felt like the way we were positioning them, maybe we'd get at least one sort of fresh blood uh, catapulting forward up the rankings in this division and maybe give us something new to do uh, with the, the title picture there. And instead, you get two fighters who have both already been there, both like in the last year, basically, uh, and have also both already fought each other. And are you going, well, shit, it's just musical chairs here in this division. Kind of, yeah, but that's that's Jermaine Duran to me and Holly Holm, man. Like, I don't think you can throw them out there in stepping stone fights and just assume they're going to lose. They're both really good fighters, and like they can both go out there and beat your young up and comers any any day. It seems like that's that's a product of the UFC matchmaking style more than anything else. Like, if this is box, if this was boxing, uh, we would never in a million years let fighters like Holly Holm and, and Jermaine Durand to me around Juliana Pena and Irene Aldana. Like we would just find them a, a, a bunch of cans to beat up until they were ready to lose to the champion. Uh, and we would all be fine with that. But because this is MMA and the UFC has historically had a very different max matchmaking style. These are the fights you get, you get, you get tested this way. And sometimes the old road dogs still win them. That's nice. It's good. It's good to lift the spirits a little bit every once in a while like that. All right, let's do, uh, are you fucking kidding me, Ben? And then, we will move on to round number two. What is your, are you fucking kidding me this week? Well, remember how we were talking not too long ago about your boy, Mike, Mike Perry, platinum, Mike Perry, PMP himself. How could I forget any discussion about Michael Perry? That he has apparently solved all his substance abuse issues that he was going to go seek treatment for because he is back going to fight Robbie Lawler coming up at UFC 255 next month. Recently though, he's out there on the Twitter's. Here's a tweet from Mike Perry. <clears throat> Whoever gives me the most money can be in my corner with at Latori G, his, his girlfriend, and, and I, I believe who's going to have his child soon. So that is Mike Perry. It's just Un an open call for money. It's unclear exactly how he's going to receive this money or how the bidding process will work or if he can actually just sell a corner spot. And take that person with him to, to Abu Dhabi. Is that where that fight is? I don't even know. But if he can just auction off one of his corner spots and for a nominal fee, you can get to stand there and help hold the ice bag and tell him you're doing great, baby. Are you fucking kidding me? Is, is that Mike how I have to say it? Is Mike Perry crazy, Chad? Or is he crazy like a damn fox? First of all, UFC 255 is November 21st, venue and city TBD. So okay. it's not not necessarily apparent that he would have to get you into the the fight atoll at Abu Dhabi. But at the same time, now considering capital letters, everything that's been going on, trademark sign uh, in the world, now is not a great time to auction off of a corner spot. Because not only does that person have to give you the money, then you have to get them in the bubble. And yeah. if I'm the UFC, I'm probably like, nah, don't think so, Mike. Don't think you're going to be able to bring this rando uh, in as your corner person, no matter how much they paid you. Really? Because they they let him bring in his girlfriend. 
She's the corner person, man. Show some respect, folks. Put some respect on Latori's name. I'm just saying that maybe, maybe it is possible. And hey, I appreciate they they did away with sponsors. They did away with that revenue stream for UFC fighters. Mike Perry is thinking outside the box, finding other revenue streams. He is maybe not the businessman we need, but perhaps the businessman we deserve. Fucking kidding me? me? You fucking kidding me? Of course. Then, if you're the person who wins this auction or whatever it is, first of all, ah. I'm going to need to see some manner of contract before I give Mike Perry the money. And then uh, let's, let's say, let's say you're all set to be Mike Perry's corner person. And then the UFC is like, no, you can't come in because of COVID-19. Are you going to ask Mike Perry for your money back? Yeah. Also the way he phrases this, whoever gives me the most money. So apparently we're all just out here trying to guess an amount to give him. And you could give him like 500 bucks and he'll be like, sorry, you didn't win. Somebody else gave me more. And you just have to be like, okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's like a silent auction where everyone gets charged. There's, there's some flaws in the system is what I'm saying, but I appreciate the effort. Ben, did you see Artem Lobov out here on Twitter? You know, I saw Artem Lobov out here on Twitter, Chad. At Russ Hammer MMA, breaking it down for the kids at home. A little bit of business acumen, a little bit of, uh, of insider knowledge here. Three things to look for in a contract, he tweets. One, flat fee, no show plus win bonus. Result of the fight doesn't affect promotion's income and shouldn't affect yours. Two, guaranteed number of fights per year with compensation if not offered. Three, compensation if a fighter is released before the contract is up. Are you fucking kidding me, Ben? This is like the smartest, most relatable, best thing I've ever seen Artem Lobov say. Is this where we're at now? Artem Lobov? Uh, business genius, MMA business genius. Is this where we're at? Cause I love it. I'm here for it. Wait a minute. I mean, wasn't Artem Lobov in like finance before he became a professional fighter? I mean, I don't know the man's entire bio, so maybe that's true. And if that's the case, I like to see him applying it here, man. I like to see Artem Lobov using his skills to help others pay the bills. Yeah, no, I mean like everything he is laying out here, these are good suggestions. These are, are good ideas. And if MMA fighters could, I don't know, sort of collectively decide to take action on something like that, sort of all get together and agree that they would not sign any contracts that did not have all these sorts of provisions laid out in there so that maybe the contracts would not solely be for the protection of the promoters, but also work in the protection of the fighters as well. Maybe that would be a good idea for them. Just saying. You fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? We just did a just saying stuff and our fuck. Are you fucking kidding me? In one. Well, don't worry because my just saying stuff later in the show will contain elements of are you fucking kidding me? Okay, I like this. God, now I'm, I'm on pins and needles to find out. As for right now, though, we're going to get started with round number two. Chad, I would like to begin round number two with a quote, a quote from Israel Adesanya on Twitter.com, October 2nd. 
He clowns me about believing in cartoon characters, yet he pretends to be a Christian and read the watered-down version of the Bible. Ha 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 ha. The irony. You don't know God, Jonathan. Whoa. Now, Chad, that's where, for me, I took a step back and said, all right, the beef between Israel Adesanya and John Jones is officially capital letter W weird. Yeah. It was already, I mean, once people start talking about each other's families, first, John Jones, I believe, talking about uh, what does your father tell you about, like, you say your father told you how to beat me. What What does your father know? Then Israel Adesanya took it somewhere else by talking about how uh, John Jones's deceased mother would be disappointed in the man he's become, which that's, you know, John Jones is going to take that well. And this, how do you end up with a fighter beef that ends in one telling the other that he doesn't know God? That is some strange ass shit, man. And there's a, we reached a point here where I want to be like, Hey, I know you guys feel like, you're kind of enjoying this. Neither one of you is the type to take a backward step from a public social media beef with another fighter. Maybe you feel like it's good for you to work up to this fight that maybe in some version of the future you may or may not have, even though now there's like two weight classes separating you. But it's getting a little uncomfortable. Was that a tweet from UFC middleweight champion Israel Adesanya that you read at the beginning of this round? Or was that a tweet from Friedrich Nietzsche? <laughs> no, that was, that was Izzy. That you was, that was Izzy Adesanya. Oh God, Jonathan. Okay, here's, here's my actual introductory question here, despite the fact that this has gotten very weird. And didn't one of these dudes was, was somebody... Anyway, I, I'm not even going to bring it up. Uh, I was going to bring up the raw dog incident, but I don't know. We'll, we'll just move on. Uh, my, my actual introductory question here is, is, has Israel Adesanya cemented himself now as the biggest star in the UFC, the biggest like current active star, maybe aside from Habib Nurmagomedov, but it seems like we thought this was going to happen for him in the wake of the Yoel Romero fight. Now it seems like it actually has happened for him in the wake of the Paulo Costa fight, just because it seems like Israel Adesanya is the guy everybody wants to call out, whether they be, you know, former champion Chris Weidman that we talked about earlier in the show or uh, former light heavyweight champion, allegedly on his way up to heavyweight John Jones is going to talk about fighting Israel Adesanya, like regardless of how weird it's gotten. And I agree with you. It's it's been really weird. Like Israel Adesanya is the guy everyone wants to call out, man. That's got to stand for something, doesn't it? It does. It does. And especially, I don't know. There's a part of me that's getting old GSP Anderson Silva vibes here, right? Because we used to say how when people would talk to Anderson Silva about, hey, why don't you go up a division and fight John Jones? And John Jones would be like, yeah, I'll do that. And Anderson Silva would be like, "Eh, why doesn't GSP come up a division and fight me? And it's like everybody wanted to fight the smaller guy. Now, John Jones actually kind of putting his money where his mouth is going up a division. And I would say at this point, not even allegedly, because if he gives up the belt, which he has, I don't think that that's something you do if you're just bullshitting about going up to heavyweight. So it seems like he is actually going up there. And yet cannot stop it with Israel Adesanya. And part of me wonders how much of it is just regular old John Jones stuff where, uh, you know, somebody barks at him. He's going to bark back at them. He kind of can't help himself there, especially, 
he he can be nice to everybody as long as they accept that he is the greatest fighter alive and they don't dare challenge that. Like once they do, then we're not friends anymore. And I wonder how much of it is just that he feels like he's been on the block for a while now holding it down and he was the exciting wonderkind of MMA and everybody got super pumped up about all the accomplishments he had and all the times that he was breaking uh, previous UFC records as a young superstar champion. And then Israel Asanya comes along and at a point when maybe – I'm not saying people are sick of John Jones, but the novelty has has done worn off. And Israel Asanya comes along and he's the flashy new guy with pink hair doing anime shit. He can relate to the internet nerds of MMA culture more than John Jones can and more directly on their level. People are getting excited about him. And is there a part of John Jones that goes, wait a minute? No, no, I, I'm supposed to be the guy you guys are excited about. Like, I'm not ready to give up that title yet. Ten tweets in the last hour. From John Jones, mostly about Israel Adesanya. Now, that's so, some Donald Trump shit right there. He's fired up right now. In fact, there's some and there's some big time uh, Trump overtones here where people people are clearly trying to ask John Jones questions here to get him off the subject. The most recent tweet is somebody says uh, at Johnny Bones, tell me you saw Holly put on a clinic last night. I don't see anybody talking about it. So Jones can be like, I was incredibly proud of her. She looked like the total package the other night. Just like people essentially being like, hey, John, talk about something else now. Uh, what about Holly Holm, your friend? She got a win. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but it's like I've seen too be like, all right, I'm 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 done tweeting about this stuff. I'm done talking. about." It. And then 45 minutes later, it, it's, he just comes back into the room basically going, you know, and another thing. You know what else I think is kind of funny, uh, and, you know, and then he just starts it all over again, and it seems like he can't quite leave this alone. And I go back and forth watching them both, and I'm, I'm going. For one thing, do we think that this is a fight that's really going to happen? Because it seems like it gets less likely as one as John Jones is moving up a division. Now there's an even bigger gap between the two of them, and yet. It does seem like a thing that's getting people excited. We already talked a little bit how it's not hard to imagine pretty soon Israel Adesanya running out of options around at middleweight. And they're both kind of going back and forth. And it feels like I, I, I can't tell. Do they both think this is a thing we're doing or do they think this is a thing that, you know, if somebody says some shit, I got to say some shit back. Do, do they think this is a way to get my name in the news. Uh, do they think like, okay, this is, I, I'm, I'm a PR genius, basically how I'm spinning this. I can't tell because it gets to a point when we're both going back and forth to an extent where it doesn't seem like a good look for either guy. And I also can't tell if this, are you building up hype for a fight that you really think is out there in the future? And we're all just putting money in the bank here, waiting to cash in on it at a later date. Once we get through some other business, or are we just a couple of guys mad online talking shit? Yeah. I mean, it is both high praise, but also somewhat faithful to describe this as the new GSP Anderson Silva, because we all know what happened with that potential matchup, or I should say what didn't happen. Like those guys didn't actually fight. Uh, and so it's easy to imagine John Jones and Israel Adesanya not actually being all that serious about, about doing this. Uh, and I guess in John Jones's defense, unless I missed a step, which is entirely possible in the world of social media where I'm not 
monitoring everyone's every tweet. But like, it seems like Israel Adesanya kind of made it weird when he brought up John Jones's mom. Yep. Because like John Jones's mom legitimately did just pass away uh, pretty recently. So like, that's a thing that could probably get you heated if you are a guy who we know is as easily uh, like riled up as john jones like that he that could probably stick in your mind for a while that could get you 10 tweets in the last hour perhaps if if uh, you're israel adesanya uh but then at the same time and i guess this is my i said now that in defense of john jones this is my indictment of john jones like doesn't this whole thing kind of make john jones just look as flighty as we thought he was before because it's like it was just a couple months ago that he was kind of like, I'm done with the UFC. I'm piecing out the game. Like, have fun, guys. I'm just going to be a dad and a husband and all this stuff. Then all of a sudden he was like, well, now they got my money and I'm going to go up to heavyweight. So I'm relinquishing the title. And I next up is Stipe. Now all of a sudden he's beefing with the middleweight champ. So it's just sort of like, can we, could we set a goal and like focus on <laughs> one thing here? Like, it just seems like he's a little bit all over the map right now with the stuff that he wants and maybe always has been, but, and I don't want to be too critical of the guy because of it. Cause like, you know, it's hard to tell where his head really is just from judging from his social media presence. But at the same time, it's kind of like, damn it, John, we just decided, we just decided you were going to go to heavyweight. You just gave up the title. Now you're beefing with the guy, a weight class below where you just were. Come on, man. MMA career counselor, Chad Dundas advises choosing a goal Sticking with it, seeing it through. Well, and now we also got Dana White being like, he doesn't know that he wants to talk about Brock Lesnar, doesn't think Brock Lesnar is a realistic option. The fight to make is Israel Adesanya versus John Jones, he's saying. Like, are we all just taking this beef and doing our stuff with it? Is that, is that what we're doing? Everybody gets to do their stuff? Everybody gets to do their stuff, Chad. That's nice. That's really nice for everybody. That is going to do it for round number two. We will be right back with round number three. Coming up this weekend from out there on the pugilistic peninsula at Abu Dhabi, the Flash Forum, at least we got a full card now here for UFC on ESPN Plus 37, a.k.a. UFC Fight Island 5, a.k.a. UFC Fight Night 179, a.k.a. UFC Fight Night Marace versus Sandag. And these things just get more names. Yep. You'd think at some point we would reach a, a critical mass, a carrying capacity where these UFC events would have to start getting fewer names. I feel like every time I look at the Wikipedia, more and more names for every event, every time I look at it. In any case, your main event, Marlon Marais versus Corey Sandhagen, an important bantamweight contender fight. And then uh, we got a complete card here listed on the Wikipedia page. So that's nice. Your guy, Ben Rothwell, returning at heavyweight to fight Marcine Tibera. You got Edson Barbosa at featherweight uh, fighting Marquan Amir Khani. Uh, you know, so... There could be some fun stuff on here, even though at, at first glance, this looks like a uh, a relatively low-profile pandemic-era UFC event from over there in the United Arab Emirates. Is there anything on this card that even strikes your fancy, Ben? Well, you know I'm going to be watching anytime my dude Ben Rothwell is on the card. 
I know that you and the Dark Lord have a special relationship. Yeah. Uh, the the Marisers of Sandhagen fight, I think, is really interesting. And that's one that I think everybody ought to be keeping a close eye on there. The Especially because, you know, we saw Sandhagen go out there, lose that fight to uh, Aljamain Sterling. Uh, and it still seems a little bit unclear what Aljamain Sterling is going to get out of the deal. Marlon Marais is sitting right now at the number one spot on the UFC rankings. So Corey Sandhagen, who is sitting at number four, is in a position where he's fighting the number one guy. Like he's, in that sense, kind of leapfrogging Aljamain Sterling, who is at number two in the rankings right now. And so if you're Corey Sandhagen, you got to be thinking of this as like, hey, if I go out there, I'm here in the the damn main event of one of these cards. And if I can beat somebody like Marlon Moraes, maybe everybody can just agree to not mention that fight that I lost to Aljamain Sterling. Maybe then I, the the train is back on the tracks. You know, I, I, everybody can think about that long winning streak I had before I had that loss. And it, that can be just a blip. And then who knows what happens from there. So it seems like a really big opportunity for him. And just style wise, doesn't that seem like that's going to be a fun fight? Yes. Yeah. They will. Uh, it's going to be bananas. They're going to throw bungalows in this one. I can almost guarantee it. Previous to this, uh, the best way to leapfrog Marlon Moraes in the uh, bantamweight title picture was to come down from featherweight and lose to him. Correct? Yeah, well, I mean, the the thing that Marlon Moraes, I think, is if, like if you're looking at what Marlon Moraes is trying to do here, uh, he he had that win over Jose Aldo that everybody just acted like is not a win, right? right. <laughs> like where we decided we're just Dana White said, I don't feel like he lost it. We're going to treat him like he won. And Marlon Moraes is going to be standing there going, guys, what the fuck? Wait, what? Yeah. Like, you know what? And you look back, he, he was looking pretty good against Henry Cejudo. And then Henry Cejudo comes back and, and finishes him. And so it's like Marlon Moraes in a weird way feels like the forgotten man of the division. Like he, he's got to go in there, beat somebody up to remind everybody that like, Hey, he, he, he is still a somebody here who, who matters very much. Uh, I don't know. It's, it also seems to me like the whole division feels a little bit wide open right now. Right. Like you're just you're waiting for somebody to really make a claim. I would argue Aljamain Sterling has made that claim, but it kind of still feels like anything could happen. And that's what I would be telling myself if I was one of these two guys headed into this one. Yeah. Right now, especially for Marlon Moraes, like it kind of feels like we have no idea how good he is at, at bantamweight, at least over his most recent stretch where like. You know, he had the four wins in a row, and then he had that great performance against Henry Cejudo, where Cejudo uh, ended up turning the tide and coming back and, and beating him by TKO at UFC 238. And then, as you said, the UFC 245 fight against Jose Aldo that we all collectively decided to disavow, which has got to be a special kind of frustration if you're uh, if you're Marlon Moraes that, uh, that doesn't happen in other sports. Like, very seldom in the NFL are they like, well, hey, you know, we know that the Patriots won the NFC championship game, but uh, we're just going to go ahead and go with the other team anyway, because we think that they <laughs> yes. would make, make for a better Super Bowl. Uh, so that's that's got to be like a very unique feeling. But like, you know, if you wipe out that loss to Cejudo, where Marlon Race looked for all the world like he was going to win it, uh, you got you got a guy here in, in Marlon Moraes that 
uh, we don't know quite what the ceiling is for him. Previous to this, his only other UFC loss was the split decision in Rafaela Sunsau, which he came back and uh, and avenged in uh, an emphatic fashion. So, like, if you're Marlon Moraes, this fight against Corey Sandhagen is it might well be one where you want to make a statement, where you you like you you might want to do something that the next time they can't just pretend like it didn't happen. Yeah. These motherfuckers not going to be out here pretending that you didn't kick somebody upside their head and put them to sleep. I can tell you that much right now. And uh, we talked about our Aljamain Sterling, though, Ben. And like you said, that you think like he's made the case that he has to make for for himself to get the title shot. But at the same time, like it, it again, as the UFC has done in this division recently, it, it kind of feels like we are just not going to uh, we're not going to acknowledge that or like and it seems like every time he wins, like when he won at UFC 250 against Corey Sandhagen, Dana White was kind of like, yes, Aljamain Sterling is next. Like he's going to get the title shot. And then it seems like as time passes, uh, we forget about that conveniently. Yeah. How about that? Although the winner of this thing, right. Well, for all three of these guys, the prize is to go up there and fight Peter Yawn, which uh, seems kind of like, you're saying, like, again, be careful what you wish for? Yeah, it seems like a slow and painful death that you've wished for. Because Peter Yan's not going to knock you out with one shot. He's just going to uh, make it hurt for about 25 minutes before perhaps he finishes you. You know what? And I'd kind of watch any of those guys fight Peter Yan, even though I think Aljamain Sterling is the most deserving. Yeah, that's... Uh, it's a terrific, it's a terrific matchup. It's a, it's going to be a fun bantamweight fight. If nothing else, I'll, I would tune in to watch that. Uh, anything else on this card that that rates your attention? And we're, we've got to see, we're, we're starting to see an awful lot of names show up as repeat performers here during the uh, pandemic era. Era. Yeah, I mean, obviously we t- we mentioned Ben Rothwell, Edson Barboza versus Mr. Finland, Maquan Mirakani. That should be fun. Remember last time out, Aquan Amirakani choked the dude out with an anaconda choke and then helped him lift his legs up. Just, yeah, well, he's a nice guy. Yeah. Mr. Finland is a nice man. He's a fun guy to watch too. So that and, and Edson Barbosa is a fun guy to watch, but for being a human buzzsaw. So I, I feel like that that ought to be interesting. Right. And again, like another situation where he makes his featherweight debut, he loses to Dan Egave or his via, via split decision uh, in May. But at the same time, this was yet another fight where we look at it and we think, well, even though he lost, Edwin's Eds and Barboza looked pretty stinking good at 145 pounds. So it'll be interesting again to see what he can do here in his second featherweight performance. I'll just say this. If if you're on the prelims of this one and you know, you're not making a ton of money and you're really banking on getting a performance of the night bonus, and you look up to the top of the card and you see in the co-main event Edson Barboza versus Maquan Amirakani, and in the main event, Marlon Moraes versus Corey Sandhagen. I think that's the point where you probably tell yourself, All right, let's shoot for one of those like kind of knockout based performance bonuses or like a cool submission based performance bonuses. Cause fight of the night might be spoken for by the time yeah. this is all wrapped up. I hope you haven't spent that money. I hope <laughs> yes. you haven't pre spent that $50,000 because yeah. uh, might be hotly contested at this event. All right, let's do just saying stuff, man. And then we will get out of here for this week. Uh, ben, did you see this? I think uh, Diego Sanchez came out on his Instagram following his loss to Jake Matthews. And wrote, uh, Warriors don't always win. They do, however, always survive. I took a fight on the other side of the world on a month's notice, fought in my fourth prime 26-year-old out of my last five opponents with a torn labrum in my left hip. I guess I'm just saying 
why does Diego Sanchez appear intent on continually pioneering new ways to make me feel sad? Like, <laughs> I already felt sad, man. I already felt sad about this fight between you and Jake Matthews. Now you got to tell me after the fact you had a torn labrum in your hip. That, that just makes me feel good. even sadder, man. I'm just yeah. saying. Just saying. Even sadder. <laughs> well, Chad, I'm going to read you a headline from MMAfighting.com. Are you ready? Diego Sanchez circles back a week later and is like, I don't think these motherfuckers are sad enough. <laughs> oh, we're sad enough. Trust somebody, me. Somebody passed me my phone. Here's the headline. Leon Edwards not interested in Wonder Boy fight tells Kamzat Chimaev to, quote, beat someone in the top fucking 25 first. Now, in this story, we get Leon Edwards responding to uh, potential, other potential fights out there for him. He's clearly still targeting being the number one contender going after the welterweight title. But the Wonder Man, Stephen Thompson, has said that he would like that fight. Leon Edwards doesn't like that idea because he says, Quote, as far as Wonder Boy, he got knocked out like a fight ago. Pettis knocked him out one fight ago. If I go out there right now and I fight Wonder Boy and I beat Wonder Boy, the UFC will be like, let's go one more in the top five and then we'll go for a title. They wouldn't give me a title shot straight away. Uh, and then you got Kamzat Chimaev talking about how, uh, you know, he'd he'd get in there and fight him. He, uh, Edward says, as far as Chimaev, he's only had, what, one fight at welterweight against a lightweight guy? It's hard to judge from that. When he's calling me out, I don't really pay attention. It is what it is. I don't really pay attention too much. He has to at least beat somebody in the top fucking 25 before you go straight to fucking fight number three, Edward said with a laugh. At least fight somebody in the top 25 or 30 first. Then we can start talking from there. Chad, I guess I'm just saying... Leon Edwards, you're not, you're not exactly wrong, but it's, it's maybe not helping. Yeah. You know, cause I see the points you're making and I have to agree that there is some sound logic there. You're, you're right there at or near the top of the rankings. You're looking to move on from there, looking to move up and, uh, really get something working. And you feel like, you know what, these other people. Uh, they're way below you in the rankings. They're asking you to fight down. And in a fight that even if you win, it probably would not say to the UFC and to the fight watching public, this guy must be put in a title fight right now because he beat the Wonder Man or something. I get it. I get what you're saying. I don't exactly disagree. But how long do you want to sit around talking and talking about which fights don't make sense? At, at some point, don't you think you're probably going to have to get in there and fight somebody who's available? Because... I don't know. I don't think the title shot is getting any closer as guys like Colby Covington and Masvidal are out there making their cases. And you're sitting there talking about why it doesn't make sense for you to fight some of the people who actually want to fight you. I'm just saying. Just saying. Yeah, we're all rooting for Leon Edwards. We want Leon Edwards to get a high profile opportunity. We want him to eventually get a championship opportunity if he keeps winning. But at the same time, it doesn't seem like a great look for him to be out here kind of like talking his way out of all these fights. Yeah. Like, he should be. He should take one at some point. Otherwise, it's going to be twenty years from now, and uh, he's going to be sitting around laughing, scoffing at the notion that he would fight Dwayne Maya, uh, the nineteen-year-old son of Damian Maya, who's on a four-fight win streak in the UFC welterweight division. That's all I'm saying. Just saying. That's going to do it for the co-main event podcast this week. If you have uh, questions, comments, or concerns, you know how to get a hold of us. Go to the website, comainevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. Maybe we'll get you on the next show. Don't forget, we're over at the Patreon page, patreon.com slash co-main event. 
all week. We got the live chat and the movie club coming up on Wednesday. And then, of course, another Power Hour featuring the aptly named Co-Main Event Podcast Patreon Power Hour Power Rankings on Friday leading up to this UFC event over there in Abu Dhabi. One week from today, we will be back here to break down everything that happens. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. There's a knocking on your door. There's a knocking on your office door. No, it's just me uh, just tapping my pen against the, uh, against the desk. Are you sure? There might be a child trying to get your attention. There you go. No, the children are the children are taken care of for the for the time being. So I'm not worried. I'm not worried. <laughs>